Why are so many Americans calling for the dismantling of the Department of Education? Former Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos has really good answers. While America's school system has made little progress over the last 175 years, the teachers' unions have amassed more power than any other group in America. Parents are waking up and demanding better options for our kids. This conversation gives a roadmap on how to get there. Betsy, I think that you're probably the most famous education secretary in America, maybe even the world. And it is not necessarily because you were out to be famous, but the teachers' unions hated you so much that they decided to make you famous, uh, which probably means that you did a lot of good things. I hope we did. I know we did. We focused on doing the right thing for children, and that was anathema to the teachers' unions and all of their allies. Well, what I learned, especially in the type of work that we do in uh, advocating for children, is that we need to be okay with the labels and the pushback because there is real evil that is happening mm. uh, against our children. And people are willing to go to really far ends to, you know, just lie and attack and scare. I mean, I've been in many situations where I was scared and I know you had to hire people to protect you. And it, it is crazy the type of attacks that we're seeing on parents and people in education who are trying to do better for our country. So I, I look forward to this conversation. I have a lot of questions. Um, I really want to understand why the attacks uh, mm -hmm. on you. Um, but mostly I want to understand you and where you came from and what are the, what's the type of work that you were trying to bring uh, to help our country. Marissa, I'd been working in education reform and really advocating for school choice, for parental empowerment to make the best choice for their children's education for 30 years before uh, you know, 2016, the day after the election, I got up early that day to go to Indiana to meet with a bunch of legislators and other allies fighting for uh, policy in Indiana that was going to help kids. And while I was on the plane going down there, I received a one-sentence email from my friend Jeb Bush, the former governor of Florida, and it said, would you ever consider being secretary of education? And until I read that sentence, that thought had never crossed my mind, even for a nanosecond. <laughs> so I, I just kind of chuckled and showed it to my colleague who was going down for the meetings with me and, um, and you know, put it in the back of my mind for the day. Later that day, talked with my husband and said, huh, I got this from Jeb. What do you think? And I, I haven't responded yet. I think what I'm going to say is, the thought has literally never crossed my mind, but if the opportunity ever did arise, how could I not consider it? And so that was how the whole thing started. And um, then Vice President-elect Pence was very involved in all of that. He had been talking with Jeb about possible individuals for the Department of Education. And so it all happened very quickly. And just a couple of weeks after the election, I received a call from then President-elect Trump saying, Betsy, you're going to make a great Secretary of Education. <laughs> what did Jeb know about you that made him think that you would be the right person to be an education secretary? Well, we had worked together for many years and served together on different boards that were advocating for these policies to support 
parental choice, uh, school choice. And so um, I, I think he was thinking about individuals that would think outside of the box and go mm-hmm. to Washington to really try to make change focused on doing the best thing for children. And, and he was, uh, you know, he was absolutely right about my desire in that. And he knew I was also unafraid of battling with the teachers unions because we'd done it on a state by state basis for many, many years before that. Mm-hmm. I'd imagine that he thought what I thought, which is you're a typical mama bear. You're super involved in your kid's education. You sat on multiple education boards and you spent your time and money for many years in education. And you're a little bit of an outsider too, because you wanted to bring in innovation into an industry that has seen so little innovation for what the last 175 years. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we're essentially doing K-12 education today, almost the same as when Horace Mann and his counterparts introduced it to our country, um, taken from Prussia and uh, introduced here as a way to put all kids in at the beginning of the system, put them through all of the same uh, courses and same learnings and turn them out the other end, ready to go to work on factory lines. Mm. Well, our country's not and our, and our culture and our economy is not anything like that today. And yet it's fundamentally unchanged from that time. And so, uh, you know, looking at ways to interject innovation and creativity, there's been a, there have been attempts at the state level. There have been attempts from Washington to essentially mandate that, but it's not, it's not worked to any large extent. The only way it's ever going to work is when we do have many, many, many states that have adopted education freedom policies Mm -hmm. and a marketplace gets created because that's when the real innovation will be introduced. I think what you've done is so amazing because many other mama bears looked at you and said, okay, well, I may not have a degree in education, but it might even be better. I have children that I'm raising. I have a stake in the game. I want to get involved. I want to be on school boards. And this push against parents who may have not been part of the system for a long time is over. It's done with, right? We are showing up. It's our kids who are going to these schools. And we are the best representatives of our children. And the fact that they've pushed us out and made us feel insecure that we shouldn't be involved in our kids' education, those days are over. I mean, I think COVID woke up a lot of parents, but also what you did woke up a lot of parents. And this attack on you, well, you know, Secretary Betsy DeVos does not have a master's in education and therefore she can't be secretary of education. You know, my response, and I do have a master's in education, and so maybe it's fair that I would say it is, and that is, Because you don't have a master's in education, because you haven't been indoctrinated, because you actually put your time, treasure, money, um, and your own kids in the system, I think made you better because you better understood what was lacking, what was missing. And you tried to push for these things. And the more you tried to push to do good, the more they tried to attack you. And if anybody needs to understand what has happened here and what has happened to you, is is they they need to understand that they did not want an outsider. You know, it's it's ironic to me that the union bosses, two of them, Randy Weingarten and is it Becky Pringle. Pringle, Mm -hmm. neither one of them have children. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, to push out people like you or or like other parents who want to be on school boards. Because supposedly we don't have, you know, 
education experience or expertise or the proper brainwash, you know, that their systems have put people through, uh, those days are over. Those days are over. Well, you, you've, uh, you've put your finger on it, Marissa. The, you know, COVID really did lay bare the failings of the system to parents who thought their children were in good schools. They may have chosen to buy a home in a neighborhood that was higher priced than they could really afford because it supposedly had a good school for their mm-hmm. child. And yet so many of them were so disappointed by how the system handled the whole COVID navigation and uh, whether they were shut out for months on end or there were mask mandates that were coming and going or the curriculum that they they saw f- firsthand on their dining room table um, that was antithetical to their family values mm-hmm. or um, totally lacking in rigor and expectation a whole host of issues really revealed themselves then. And that's what really triggered the kind of momentum we're seeing today around policy changes that for 30 some more years before that had been in the works. And some states that had adopted those policies and were much further along in being able to pivot and offer families other alternatives. But that was really uh, that was really the turning point when the the you know parents from across the country saw front firsthand what was actually going on and decided you know it's time to really take things back into our family and and have us have the power and ability to make these decisions. Mm-hmm. We pay immense amounts in taxes to the Department mm-hmm. of Education, and I know one of the things that you try to do which is surprising because it was while you were running the Department of Education, you were trying to shrink its power and its budget. And of course, you were attacked for that, even though, you know, most secretaries of education probably want more, 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 but you wanted more for kids. Can you give me a little bit of the history of the Department of Education? How did it come about? Sure. What does it actually do? Sure. Well, every year we spend about $750 billion on K-12 education. The Department of Education was founded in 1979 by then President Jimmy Carter. It was a payoff to the teachers unions for having endorsed him in 1976 for president. It was the first time teachers unions had gotten involved with a presidential endorsement. So to make good on his promise, he established the department in 1979 Ostensibly, the goal was to close the achievement gaps between the highest performers and the lowest performers. Now, we have spent only at the federal level over a trillion dollars since 1979 specifically to do that. If you look at all of the measures around achievement gaps, not only have they not narrowed one little bit, by most measures, they've actually widened. Mm -hmm. And so here, 44 years later, we're doing the same things and we're expecting different results with more money. It's not going to happen. It hasn't happened. And uh, that's why it's becoming clearer to people who are paying attention. We have to give the power to the families, to the those who are closest to the children. And they're ultimately going to drive the difference and drive the improvements and drive achievement levels for kids. 
How much influence do the teachers' unions have on the Department of Education? Oh, they have total control of the Department of Education. I mean, the career staff that is there, most of them fought daily all of the initiatives that we were trying to to take to reorient everything we did on doing the right thing for students. It is really a political arm. They have essential control over that whole federal agency, and uh, it only ebbs and flows a bit depending on who's in the White House. And uh, clearly during our administration, we you know, fought that back and we we did things to ma- upset them in many ways because we were focused on kids. We were not focused on their agenda of more more resources, more power, more control over every element of education. It's just become a really, really bad uh, equation for every child that's involved in K-12 education. I mean, that's just insane that there there are teachers unions that actually control a government entity. I mean, how is that even legal? I mean, should the Department of Education just be, you know, abolished? Well, I have called for the abolishment of the Department of Education, and uh, we actually started to try to work toward that end um, by presenting a couple of budgets while in office that would have block granted mm-hmm. all of the funds that the department received appropriated by Congress back to the states and local districts to make the best decisions for the students closest, you know, closer to the students. Um, unfortunately, it didn't receive a very serious hearing in Congress. Mm. But uh, I think today, having that conversation again, there will be a lot more support for considering ways to really devolve power and control from that entity, from that agency, uh, much closer to the people. And I would argue the best way to do that is actually to give it, you know, to to empower families directly. The ones that you're most trying to help, the ones that were ostensibly why the department was formed in the first place, um, you know, they're going to make better decisions for their children or for their local, you know, in their local community than uh, this agency in Washington, D.C., that is continuing to be controlled by uh, all of those involved with the union and their and all of the allies. It does explain why all of this curriculum that is coming into our schools is so, you know, basically a left-wing agenda. I, I read the NEA's um, agenda a couple of years mm-hmm. ago, and the topics in there were mind-boggling. I mean, you go from anything... Uh, border security related, uh, uh, Palestinian Israeli packing the courts. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I read it. There were like, I don't know, 50 pieces. Nothing about a a child's education (laughs) and expectations of excellence and how we're going to achieve that. Nothing about that. No. Is that why they attacked you so fiercely when you tried to bring more choice into education? Can you talk about that? Sure. Well, any um, any policy that is going to empower others to make decisions and choices that they are making mm. as part of the system today is viewed as a threat. And so whether it's charter schools or any kind of uh, education freedom policy, school choice policy that gives other others the opportunity to make decisions, that is uh, that is fought 
tooth and nail. Mm. You know, they've continued to have a political stranglehold over the Democrat Party and for many years really were influencing a lot in the a lot of individuals in the Republican Party. That has uh, that has started to change. That's changed over the years with the work that was done before mm. the, the pandemic, but it's accelerated since the exposure of the whole system during the pandemic. I remember when I was a teacher, the unions would offer to actually drive us to the ballot boxes. Now, they wouldn't tell us exactly who to vote for, but they would make strong recommendations. They would say, well, are you sure that you are voting for somebody who is teacher friendly, that's Mm -hmm. education friendly? And we were young. We didn't really know that much. And so we would follow their ideas. And, you know, really, in so many ways, they would control the way we voted. I, I don't understand how they can vilify the idea of choice, but they have. What are some of the things that you've heard them say about school choice and charter schools? And can you also explain what is a charter school and, sure. and, and how is that a choice for parents? Well, there's all kinds of arguments that they try to use depending on who the audience is, but it's, you know, whether it's privatizing public schools, whether it's, you know, uh, introducing a certain kind of uh, school and and trying to force families into it, or um, just anything that in any way takes uh, some element of control away from the system and gives it to parents or others who want something different for kids. It's viewed as uh, the enemy and and worth fighting with every fiber of uh, of their being to mm-hmm. to make sure it doesn't happen. But when we when we talk about the kinds of schools, the kinds of school choice and or education freedom that uh, that folks are electing today, um, first of all, we know that you know, families with economic means have been able to make choices for mm. all of history. And uh, they might make a choice around a, uh, you know, a private faith-based school or a private school that is, um, you know, much more uh, costly to um, get their children into. And, um, and with the introduction of charter schools now, uh, in Minnesota, actually by a Democrat then, um, in the early, I think it was right around 1990, um, charter schools are public schools. They're funded by the public and they are, the difference is that they're able to be independently operated. In other words, they're not under the control of the unions and all of their allies. Now, they that unions have fought against charter schools as much as they've fought against any other kind of school choice um, for all of these years. And they continue to this day to fight charter schools in every state that has them and almost every state does today. But the other forms of school choice can be um, you know, uh, private schools, private faith-based, private, um, you know, secular, non-secular schools. Uh, they could be home schools. They can be micro schools that were really concepted in, in, to a large degree during the pandemic. Um, and they can be virtual schools or any combination thereof, really. Those are just a few examples. But with the introduction of education freedom policies, the kinds of choices that families can make are going to grow and proliferate. And parents are going to be able to really customize a child's education um, 
for him or her that are going to, it's going to make such a huge difference and really unlock the potential in ways they can't by sending them just to one uh, building um, assigned by their zip code. I think the charter schools are particularly interesting because Mm -hmm. the parent is not expected to have to come up with you know, the tuition Mm -hmm. that is not really affordable sometimes with the private schools. Why is there such a push against charter schools? Well, because they're seen as a threat. Again, anything that is not under the control of the union and all of the allied organizations, they view as threatening to their future. The reality is where there is more choice and where there are more charters and other choices to be made. And just a, a little note on affordability of tuition-based schools, the states that have passed uh, policies to support uh, parents making those choices are making those kinds of options much more available and accessible today as well. And so I think we're going to see growth, continued growth in the number and variety of charter schools right along with the growth of private schools and other uh, other choices that developed that that um, you know parents are going to elect to have their kids take part in, and that's going to be a great thing because uh, there's no one size fits all for any child. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I think about m- my husband started a charter high school. It's focused on aviation, mm-hmm. and it's a great convening idea. There are other charter schools that have focused on different things, whether performing arts or, um, you know, uh, STEM-related subjects or a whole variety of of uh, approaches, and and that's all great because students then can gravitate to a place that really piques their interest and um, and and helps them to really develop their passions. So the charter schools do receive government funds, mm-hmm. but they do, they are allowed to fire bad teachers. Is they that are allowed right? To, yes, they're allowed allowed to hire and fire, and um, and they're allowed to within the laws of the state. And every state has different laws governing mm-hmm. charter schools. So um, you know, sometimes the regulations become more onerous than they should, and don't allow charter schools to be as creative as they might be in a freer environment. I think that the introduction of universal education savings accounts is going to help change, uh, you know, that dynamic around charter school regulation ultimately, because parents are going to demand it. You know, some parents might say, my child would benefit most by go- essentially going to school year round with more regular, uh, longer breaks throughout the year. But I want my child to, you know, go to school year round. Well, today in Michigan, for example, you can't do that with a charter school because that would be, um, contrary to Michigan law around that. I think again, with more of the policies being introduced elsewhere, um, you know, Florida, Arizona, Iowa, Nevada, um, Arkansas, South Carolina, just a few that have introduced these universal um, programs, you're going to see a lot of uh, a lot of response to what kids actually need mm-hmm. and development around that. And, and that's going to be a, a really good thing. And it's going to be a competitive advantage for right. the states that really do it well. Well, I think the word competition is key here because I don't know how you run a successful business if you can't let go 
of employees that are not doing a great job or if you can't hold your employees accountable. Any other business in America, if somebody does not do a great job, the management is expected to let go of them. I read somewhere that less than three out of 300 unionized teachers in California are let go every year. Yes. If you think of that percentage and you've managed anything in your life, you realize why we have such a problem. Now, I'm not saying that all teachers are bad. They're great teachers, but those great teachers are actually suffering because there are other teachers that we can't let go of. And so it is even that alone is a reason why a charter school is better than many other public schools, because whoever is managing the charter school has the ability to put the best people in front of our children and not be held hostage, Mm -hmm. right? Held, Mm -hmm. And we're all being held hostage by these unions who now you're also telling me own the Department of Education. It's mind boggling. Yeah, there is there is very little, if any, incentive for a really great teacher working within the traditional system to excel mm. because they're, you know, they're paid the same year after year, right along with those who've served as long as they have. Um, I actually had a roundtable, a couple of roundtable discussions while I was um, in office and had teachers who had been teachers of the year in their state or their district and had had their year of recognition for that and then gone back to their teaching roles. And very soon after going back, they quit their jobs. And I wanted to understand why. Because clearly they had been doing something well if they were recognized as teachers of the year. And I had instincts around what the reasons were. And, um, but it was, it was really confirming to hear from them that, you know, when they had their, they had taken their victory lap and gone back, um, they had essentially received the message that, okay, you've had your day in the sun. Now it's time to get back in your classroom and just go do your thing. And, you know, we've heard enough from you. And I think about, there's thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people like teachers like that today who have just become frustrated mm-hmm. with a system that doesn't reward excellence on their part and that actually rewards those who are mediocre at best. Mm-hmm. And that's wrong for our kids and it's wrong for those teachers. Mm-hmm. So a teacher freedom environment, a school choice environment is going to be the best opportunity for great teachers as well, because in that equation, they become a really highly valued part of that equation, and then they'll be compensated accordingly. I know they've done a lot of work studying why America's testing scores are in decline. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe we're number 38 or 39 in the world, or maybe that was before COVID? Before COVID in math, we were 38th in the world. And uh, we're not in the top 10 in any subject area. Um, And that was well before COVID. Um, And I would argue, again, it's because we continue to perpetuate a system that's essentially a monopoly. Monopolies don't work. Hmm. And our K-12 system is the largest monopoly we have in the United States. And it's supposed to be serving the most important asset we have for our future, which is our, our, you know, the rising generation, yeah, our children. Sure. And uh, it's clear they're, they've been doing it very poorly. And um, 
again, COVID revealed that mm -hmm. to those who weren't really aware of it before. Um, that's a good thing. We need to continue the momentum around the policy change that's going to really shift that equation away from the monopoly. So how do we hold these schools accountable? There are all these initiatives, No Child Left Behind, there was Common Core. Uh, I think many people have been very upset with, with those initiatives. You know, we need to have some sort of way to test the schools. Mm -hmm. what, what would you suggest doing? And can you explain also Common Core? Well, No Child Left Behind and then Race to the Top, which was essentially trying to incentivize the use of Common Core, both of those were, were efforts at the federal level to hold schools accountable for results. And um, they really proved that a top-down approach doesn't work. It hasn't worked. It won't work. And the best accountability is really, again, empowered parents making decisions and choices and taking their kids out of a school that's not working for their child and putting them into a school that does work and having transparency around and, and requiring it, like parents mandating, I wanna know what the results for kids in your school are, what, what, you know, what are you focused on, how do you teach, what are your methods, and um, what are your results? And uh, you know, if, if this is not, a match for my child, then I'm going to choose something different. But having transparency around that, around what curriculum are teaching, um, and really, really making the uh, most local unit, the family, able to drive those decisions um, will ultimately drive better results and better quality and better outcomes. Mm -hmm. And I would also argue, you know, our, our orientation in K-12 um, learning has been one of seat time. How many days are you in school? How many hours a day are you in your seat? It's not anywhere oriented around how quickly is this child learning the concepts that he or she needs to be able to move on to the next level? If we, if, if certain school, I mean, I think schools will start moving to a mastery model where if I, you know, if my child, uh, learns math quickly and can move on quickly, um, they should be able to. They should be able to go as quickly as they can to complete whatever course and then continue on. Conversely, if it takes a little longer to learn those concepts, that should be okay as well. But this seat time number of days in school is really an antiquated model for um, how we should be doing education. And yet that's what we continue to perpetuate today. Right. It's also an, a lazy way to assess, right? Yeah. Because, you know, if kids are doing math on the weekends or if kids are, are athletic and they're doing, or they're in some team sport, why not give them credit for that, right? I know that there are some states that are looking into that. The, the issue of common core, something that I, I both as a parent and as an educator struggle with, because I do believe that there should be some basic core knowledge. Let's take mm -hmm. civics, for example, or financial literacy. And I don't know that parents would know to demand that of a school or, or even know how to look for that in a school. But if, if we, you know, if we have a state that has no general standards and every school gets to do what they want and, I don't know, parents are supposed to assess whether it's worthwhile for their kids' time, that's tough too. Mm -hmm. I think mean, part of why mm -hmm. I think we're in this mess right now in America is because we have no shared 
intellectual common knowledge where we speak the same English, but we don't actually speak the same language anymore mm-hmm. because it's it's all over the place. You, people don't understand what America is because right. they're not really learning civics. They don't. It's we're a nation with amnesia. Yeah. How do you defend a nation that you don't understand? How do you love America if you don't understand? its values. And so it's it's a struggle because I, I agree with you. I think that a government that decides what every single school needs to learn is a problem. We want to have education freedom. And then with that said, we want to have a nation that has commonality. Yeah. And if our schools can't do that, how do we how do we share that common knowledge with with the next generation? It's not like it used to be where we all looked at the same TV in the same box. And that wasn't a good thing either, right? But now with kids listening to different things and there's Netflix and mm-hmm. streaming and, you know, there is there is so much information out there. How do we build cultural literacy? How mm-hmm. do we make sure that we have some common ground, that we can sure. laugh about the same jokes because we have a better understanding of yeah, things? Yeah. We can build things together because we come from the same place. You know, civics, nationalism, patriotism used to do that for America. Mm-hmm. But how do we how do we address that issue? How do we recapture the um, the focus on the importance of knowing about our nation's founding and our founding documents, our you know all of the founding principles, um, the the structure of our country, the civics um, that uh, you know that sort of uh, put that into structure, and I think that's a ve- those are very fair areas for um, states to say, there's an expectation that when a student graduates from high school, they're going to know those basic things. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some states have gone to administering the uh, citizenship tests. And, you know, that's one place to start. I mean, I'll bet most most kids today couldn't pass those tests based on what they're learning. But sta- I think states really addressing those in uh, sort of broad, um, broad strokes and say, these are important things that you have to learn. How you actually do them and um, how each child learns them can look different. I don't think we, I, we don't want to be in a situation where, where we say, here is your curriculum at the federal level for all of these things, because we know that if that ever was um, implemented that way, it would eventually get driven into a direction that none of us would be sure. happy with or support. Um, but again, I think that goes back to empowering families and being very transparent about what it is you're teaching in your school. Do you have a robust civics and American history curriculum that you're offering? And make sure parents you know that 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 can be a good selling point for a lot of schools to um you know make available uh but i again i think you're absolutely right we we have lost that it's very clear in the civics uh results the american history results in the nap the nation's report card when like 13% of high schoolers have a reasonable command of american history and civics unbelievable and we can't we can't have a country if we continue to perpetuate those mm-hmm. kinds of results. So the good thing, though, is people have awakened to this, yeah. and and they're not going to sit by and say it's okay for my child not 
to know or understand these things. Yeah. And so parents are driving this and demanding it. And, and, you know, at the state level, legislators in many states are also saying, we've got to make sure that we are clear about expectations here. You know what else I think is very interesting about this? There is a shift in parents' focus now where I would say 10, 20 years ago, parents' focus was mostly how do you get your kids into college? Mm -hmm. It was all about getting them into whatever top college you can. And I think many parents are starting to question whether college is even worth it. Um, Once upon a time, you would interview even a grade school and a high school to find out whether they're a good roadmap into getting your kids into college. Now we're starting to ask another question, whether college is worth it. And I'm Mm -hmm. curious, what is your take on it, given how much work you've done on that side? Certainly. I think they should, they are rightfully asking those questions. And again, I think COVID revealed to many families and prospective students um, how serious higher ed institutions are about actually uh, you know, robust educational offerings. I think we've also seen um, on the part of many college campuses an intolerance around the exchange of ideas mm-hmm. and free speech. And those, some of those, uh, the exposure of some of those things has rightfully called into question that whether, you know, that is the right pathway for students. Um, you know, we really highlighted the multitude of pathways that students should be considering. And uh, there are many career options that go beyond high school that don't require a four-year degree, but maybe a certification in a certain area or a year, um, you know, doing additional education. And we need to continue to highlight those and make those more accessible And employers also need to examine, and many of them are, Mm -hmm. the requirements for hiring into a business. You know, for many years, a college degree was just sort of a checkpoint to even be considered for a job. Well, many, many businesses today are rolling those back and saying, this is really probably not a necessary nor legitimate uh, first step or first consideration. And uh, so the private sector is driving some of that too. But um, again, innovators have an opportunity to really step in uh, beyond high school to offer other alternatives for a child's uh, education future. And and we're seeing that happen. Part of that was uh, enabled by the accreditation reform work we did while we were in office. Can you talk more about that? So the accreditation has been, of course, a big thing around um, higher education in particular, whether, sure. who you're accredited by, whether you're accredited. And, um, and, it, and it has been a very incestuous relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, we broke down some of those silos and are make, have, have made it much more um, plausible and possible for new innovators in higher education to come and be a part of a higher education future mm-hmm. that we, you know, in a, in a few years, I hope will look quite different than it did, um, you know, a few years ago when we were in there. It's very exciting because I think many employers like me and some of my other friends who are CEOs of companies, we're realizing that we're hiring people who have four-year degrees and nothing. Exactly. And we're like, well, what do we do with these kids? They, yeah. they haven't learned anything. And 
I actually think at least with a trade school, you come out with an actual trade. You know you're going to make money. You know that somebody's going to hire you. There's something that you can do with it where the degrees that you get from universities are oftentimes not something that our society really needs. And so why are we paying for it? And, you know, it really ties into the whole loan forgiveness program, which society is paying for people to learn stuff that society doesn't need them to learn. And that is an understatement because oftentimes, you know, you go to college or if you send your kids to college, it's like playing Russian roulette with their values. You don't even know what's going to come out of there. So, um, you know, I I know the, the loan forgiveness program is a, is a, is a very big debate right now. Mm -hmm. And it sounds great to send everybody to college, but the question is, what are they coming out with? Well, exactly. And, um, you know, President Biden's attempt to write off over a half trillion dollars in student loan debt, which of course the Supreme Court shut down. Mm -hmm. Now they're trying to find another way around it by tinkering with income-driven repayment programs. All that to say, um, if, if there is not value, mm-hmm. if the students taking out those loans cannot pay them back because they didn't get value for the education they pursued, that should be the focus. And mm-hmm. that, sh- that should be what we are, uh, you know, discussing and debating solutions for, not writing off uh, student loans and transferring all of that burden onto the backs of the two out of three Americans who never took out student loans or the ones who paid back their loans faithfully. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the cost of higher education has continued to skyrocket but there has been no governor on those costs. Uh, the federal government just keeps handing out student loans, or student debt. And, you know, since 2010, when that was federalized, you look at the cost of higher education and it's just been, you know, a steady upward trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, there are serious questions and issues here, but just saying we're going to wipe out student debt is not a solution mm-hmm. because even if you said it's a really great idea to wipe out student loan debt today, what about the students who are taking out debt next year? What has changed? Are we going to just continue to do that and keep shifting, um, you know, the cost of that to everyone else? No, it's not a plausible solution. And it's, uh, in addition to the fact that it's not legal for a president to just, you know, right. by the stroke of a pen. Right, but it sounds up. great to give free education sounds, to everyone. Yeah, it, it doesn't great. matter if they're learning things that we don't need them to learn. Who cares, exactly. right? You know, one of the things that we we really should be looking at much more seriously, and, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to visit Switzerland while I was in office, where 75% of the kids in high school are in apprenticeships, in jobs mm-hmm. that they're earning and learning at the same time. The apprenticeship model is so relevant for students today. There are so many different kinds of opportunities that they could learn from by working on the job and earning at the same time they're learning. Uh, Yet this is something that we have not really explored meaningfully in the Mm -hmm. U.S., it's, it's to a large extent, Ben, because the unions want to control all apprenticeships. Mm. Um, there was a, a small program that was put into place um, during our administration through the Department of Labor that would have allowed a lot more um, industry-recognized apprenticeship program credentials. Um, the Biden administration wiped it right out. But uh, th- I think the private sector could really drive this in a big mm. way because um, there's almost no job that 
would not, that students would not benefit from learning on the job while they're earning at the same time. And uh, it could replace a lot of the formal education that is, um, you know, sort of required uh, through, through you know, university and college. Yeah, well, so many of the degrees don't really connect to something that one could apprentice yeah. for, yeah. right? That's yeah. part of the issue. Yeah. And so I think that's a great idea. Are there any other worldwide models that are worth paying attention to that we can learn from? Well, there's a lot of state or a lot of countries that have a lot more education freedom choices really? for children in their K-12 years. Mm. Yes, many more. And of course, they're the ones that are more highly performing as 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 it relates to the rest of the world, mm-hmm. lots of opportunity to um, learn from others if you're willing to actually do that. But right. you know the the system has not been because right. the system is only interested in controlling its own agenda and controlling resources and more and more resources. Right. Well, we can't talk about college without talking about Title IX. Anybody that has a boy on campus is scared right now for a good reason. Can you explain Title IX, some of the work you tried to do there? Why are they attacking us, attacking you? I didn't want to say us, people who believe that we need to protect kids uh, on campus. Um, and then where are we on this on Title IX? Well, Title IX was a law that was passed just over 50 years ago with with the goal of uh, ensuring that women and girls had equal access to education and education opportunities. Most of us relate Title IX to the ability of women to compete in sports mm-hmm. and more women's teams and more a, a wider variety of sports. That over the years, and particularly during the Obama administration, became weaponized in a way that um, was dangerous for kids, frankly. Uh, it, 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 they, they issued uh, letters and, and dictates around how uh, you had to handle matters of sexual misconduct on campus. And they basically threw out due process and said, if anyone makes a complaint about being sexually abused, that person is automatically believed and the individual they are alleging perpetrated it does not have rights to defend him or herself and to uh, really understand what was even being leveled against them. We went through a process to regulate around Title IX to put a more cogent, fair, reliable framework around how you handle these matters on campuses. And it gave uh, great power to the individual who was making the complaint to say, uh, I want to pursue a formal process and I want, you know, I want an investigation and and Mm -hmm. all of that. Or I really just don't want to see this other person. Can I please be in different classes or can I move in a different dorm or make, make accommodations so that I don't have to encounter this person? On the other, on the flip side, the one, the individual who was receiving on the recipient end of the complaint um, was ensured that they would have due process protections. They could know what, you know, what's being alleged, um, what's the evidence. Um, they, they would be able to exchange and, and have a hearing around it if it went to a formal investigation. And um, again, putting a reliable and fair process around these issues 
um, that are, you know, very regrettable and are happening all too often on campuses, particularly college campuses. So we went through that whole process and a formal um, approach to the ultimate rule that we put out with, uh, you know, over 100,000, 140,000 different uh, inputs in the public comment section to which we responded to every one. And, uh, and predictably, this administration has come and said, we're going to really, you know, return it all to what the Obama, Obama administration did. And then we're going to go a few steps further. Like we're going to uh, define what most of us commonly know as biological sex, male and female. We're going to include um, any kind of identity that you decide you happen to have at any mm-hmm. particular time. So these rules are in process yet, but they have implemented them to a large extent and are, uh, you know, they're, they're, that, that's why we're seeing all of the um, sports teams with transgender athletes, you know, primarily biological males on female teams and all of the implications of that. And so, you know, you taking a step back and looking at that, you say, how can you say there's a Title IX law that gives women equal access to education and education opportunities, and then at the same time say biological males can compete on women's teams? They sort of mutually, are they're mutually exclusive. I mean, it really became such a huge thing now, Title yeah. IX, because it's, it, to me, it's, it's multiple different issues. Let's start with the issue of you're a boy on campus and you're expected to behave in a way that politicians are not expected to behave, right? You're, the, if somebody just accuses you, a girl just accuses you for sexual misconduct, then you're immediately reprimanded. You're not even allowed to know what you did wrong. You're just at fault. I mean, this, who, who would agree to that? Who would want to send their son to college knowing that? I mean, look, there are a lot of boys that do really bad things. But there are a lot of girls who will get very jealous or upset and will accuse someone of something and then might regret it. You know, oh, yeah, I, he hurt my feelings. And so I made a certain claim. The girls don't even need to prove that it's true. The boys don't even have the right to find out what they're being accused of. What politician would be willing to sign up for the same sign thing? Sign up for the same right. thing. No, Who's and I, doing this? I had uh, um, several hearings again in the process of writing these rules, listening to uh, victims, to those who had been wrongfully accused, and then also to the administrators. And the story, the administrators, not so much, but the stories from the victims and from those who are wrong, wrongfully accused were heartbreaking. And they just represented the tip of the iceberg because these stories are happening all over the country. And, uh, you know, several hundred lawsuits had been filed at that time, um, you know, alleging a lack of due process. So going into those cases for both the, um, the victim and the, uh, you know, the, the supposedly perpetrator, that it's hard for both of them because you o- reopen it for the one who's made the claim. Right. And then for the individual who's been harmed by not having the opportunity to defend him or herself, it's horrible, horrible right. situations. And so, the, you know, this is an issue that individuals, ha- people have got to really stand up and say, enough of the nonsense in trying trying to 
assert a left-wing agenda, including, um, you know, rewriting the definition of sex to include every, uh, you know, every different uh, choice that an individual can make. And let's, you know, let's get back to a framework, which, you know, our our rule actually provides that will um, ensure that all individuals on college campuses or on, uh, you know, educational campuses will will be able to have, you know, access their education and have a reliable approach should something bad happen. You know, the the other part of the whole Title IX thing and some of the the, um, crazy stories that have resulted is the uh, lack of free speech. Hmm. So somebody can just say something in a a classroom that somebody else takes the wrong way Hmm. and immediately it becomes a Title IX investigation. Well, these, you know, this is just not uh, really the way to conduct education settings in my view at all. So the, our again, our rule really defined what um, you know sexual misconduct was and um, and and you know how that how those would be actually defined as as real issues versus a matter of free speech. I don't know who would not want due process for their kids. Uh, but in addition to that, now this issue that you can offend someone uh, and and it could be a sexual conduct because you say something that may not affirm their gender and because of it now it's a sexual assault. I mean, that is basically, that's the free speech element. So if 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 a kid says, oh, I want you to call me uh, a boy, but I was born a girl and you're refusing to do it, now it's a Title IX issue? That's basically it? Yes, yes. And and in fact, um, there have been more than one, more than a few instances where even as low as middle school, Kids who don't call um, another a fellow student by their chosen pronoun, um, there have been Title IX investigations opened wow. on these students. Wow, wow, wow! It's really scary, mm-hmm. really scary. You know, the other scary thing is parents like me who have tried to join school boards, who have tried to protest in front of school boards, have been called terrorists. And the newest thing that really frightened me was that I noticed that uh, Randy Weingarten, uh, who is the head uh, union boss, the head of one of the largest teachers unions in the country, is now part of a commission with the Department of Homeland Security. What do we make out of all of this? Is this another way of the unions becoming more powerful now they're part of Homeland Security? Well, I think it's I think it's fair to essentially call Randy Weingarten the de facto secretary of education hmm. because everything that this administration has done is oriented around the demands of the teachers union and um and, and this notion that she can contribute in this way after how she led the um you know really dictated how the schools handled um all of the covid months and, and years. And, um, and, and, you know, this, she, she really is de facto the head of the Department of Education. And um, that's, that's evidenced by the way President Biden really gives a nod to the teachers unions at every, every opportunity he wow. has. It's unbelievable how much power they're given. What are your thoughts with regards to school safety? Why can't we have armed guards, for example, mm-hmm. in front of schools? Well. Uh, Marissa, after the Parkland uh, tragedy, 
President Trump established a school safety commission and made me chairman of that with three other agency heads. Mm -hmm. And together we worked hard on putting together a very comprehensive report and uh, list of recommendations for schools, for districts, for states to consider implementing. Um, it was not a one-size-fits-all, this-is-what-you-must-do approach, but it acknowledged that there are ways to protect children, best practices that have been deployed in different locations. And so it really was a compendium of all ways that schools could consider using to ensure their kids are protected. And uh, I like to often say, you know, what works in, uh, you know, Anchorage, Alaska is probably different than what you need in the heart of Miami. Mm -hmm. And acknowledging that geography and density and um, just, you know, school size and the, you know, the building itself, all of those things are different. And, um, you know, given good tools, everybody can really work together in a local setting to ensure that kids are protected. So what kind of tools did you come up with? And did they implement any of them? And are any of them still part of the system? Some states, some schools, some districts have used uh, very good recommendations and, and, and have deployed uh, really good ways of protecting kids. Again, it really depends on the school setting itself and what is needed. In an urban setting where you have uh, relatively few access points, it's pretty easy to um, you know, protect from unwanted entrance. But, you know, so many of these uh, tragedies, when you peel back and understand how they happened, um, you know, it really has come down to a lack of attention paid even when there were policies in place. And mm -hmm. so really ensuring that you're regularly um, you know, drilling for or reminding people what the process and what the policies are and, um, and, and, and really having a regular, um, review of the plans that you have in place and then doing necessary updates. All of those are good and helpful and useful. Some schools use armed guards. Some schools don't and have other procedures. But the point being, take it, you know, the, our recommendation was take this seriously. This is not something to just sort of put up on the shelf and refer to when something bad happens. Mm -hmm. When you talk about different schools having uh, different environments, I can't help but think about some of my friends that, th that teach in the um, inner city Chicago schools, where those places are truly dangerous. I don't know that I would have the guts to even step in there. And their issue is not necessarily, you know, if they if they had an armed guard, they would protect from an outsider shooting. Their issue is a daily occurrence of violence with fifth graders and eighth graders combined. And, you know, my understanding is that a big part of why it's so dangerous in these schools is because of lack of discipline mm -hmm. um, or, or um, you know, just the teachers and the administrators not being able to, you know, control the culture and the violence that's within the school. And that is also tied to policy, right? Yeah. Policy that has to do with, with, you know, lack of discipline and quotas. Um, are you familiar with, with these environments and, and do you have any thoughts on that? 
Well, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, what what has happened in schools has we've also seen happening in cities, right? If you if you uh, reduce the um, attention paid to, uh, you know, what lower level crimes, you automatically foster higher levels of crime uh, subsequently. Right. And um, and we're seeing it uh, we're seeing it in many urban areas today. And sadly, it's often children that are the victims of it. And I mean, I think about uh, a wonderful woman whom I had opportunity to meet and work with on more than one occasion in Washington D.C., uh, Anacostia area, just uh, a few weeks ago. The fourth student from her school this year was killed in a shooting mm. in the neighborhood. Well, that it, that speaks to what's going on in the District of Columbia and the lack of uh, attention paid to keeping the citizens there safe. Mm. And um, and so this is you know this goes well beyond school walls into many um, areas, systemic areas where where, you know, the policies are simply not focused on the right things. Mm -hmm. I know there are racial quotas around discipline as well. In the Obama administration, yes, they had instituted a discipline policy from the federal level, which basically said, um, which basically resulted in racial quotas around how many, you know, how many kids or who could be disciplined. Mm -hmm. We we rescinded that rule um, because it was, it was, Wrong. It's senseless. It's absolutely wrong. Um, kids need to be disciplined for infractions individually, not based on whether they're from one race or another. Um, and and you know, teachers and administrators need to have the tools to be able to ensure that the rest of the kids in the school have a, an environment in which they can learn. Mm-hmm. And um, I again, I had a, a roundtable listening to some of the horror stories because of this discipline policy. And, um, and, and it was, uh, it was really, really eye-opening to understand what the implications are mm-hmm. for kids who are, they're trying to learn and, um, and then having disruptions and not being, a, and, and then the teachers not being able to do anything about it because it was a quota policy. Yeah. The school shootings are very scary and they're horrible. And People should also pay attention to the fact that there are many schools across the United States that are dangerous on a daily basis. And I think Mm -hmm. that that fact is being ignored. The fact that we have kids who go to school every single day afraid, not necessarily just from a shooting, maybe from the outside, but they're actually afraid of their peers because there is so much violence actually on campus and sex on Mm -hmm. campus. Well, it's it's interesting having talked to um, many parents over the years where they've elected in in states where there have been school choice education freedom policies. Often, uh, parents will make decisions to put their child in a different school, not necessarily because they are so much higher academically, but mm-hmm. because it's a safe place. Right. And I heard it firsthand from moms and dads all over the country. Why is, you know, why did you choose this school? It's a safe place and it's a school where my child's loved. Wow. What a horrendous situation it is for so many parents who know they have to send their kid 
to a place that is dangerous for them and they don't have the choice to move them to another school where they could be safe. And the only reason they don't have the choice is because there is a behemoth that is holding them hostage. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hostages no more. The fight for education, freedom, mm-hmm. and the future of the American child. Um, those policies are, are happening and we just need to make sure they continue to grow in momentum and grow in opportunity for kids. Mm-hmm. What can we do as parents? I mean, I'm freaked out. (laughs) What can we do? Well, I I think, first of all, for those who are seeking the presidency, I think, um, you know, really challenging them on what are you, you know, what is your position regarding education and where should we be going? Um, Many of them are calling for the uh, abolition of the Department of Education. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, I think that's ultimately what what needs to happen. But there are many ways to really reorient the work of that department around actually doing um, what's best for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, that that takes a, a a a willing Congress, a Congress that is going to actually stand up to um, you know these uh, powerful unions and their allies. Um, we're seeing more of that at the state level, and that's a good thing. Um, and the, you know, what what can we continue to do is policies at the state level that will support parents making those decisions. And the more uh, families that can take their children and put them where they want them to learn, mm. um, that are not under the control of the unions, ultimately, it's going to force change in a system that refuses to change, that is only serving its own interests. Um, and that we've seen that in Florida yeah. to some extent. We'll see it more as more and more families make choices other than their assigned schools. Can you give me some pragmatic advice? You know, I have really little ones, 10 years old, eight year old, five year olds. You know, we're interviewing schools. My friends are interviewing schools. If we're looking for a school, if we're in, most parents don't have the opportunity. We don't have education freedom everywhere. But for those who do have education freedom, what are things to look for when finding the school that's the right match for us? Well, I think the best, um, the best thing to look for is, you know, what are your friends and neighbors? What, what have their experiences been? Mm -hmm. A word of mouth is powerful. And uh, mama bears are, are especially so in comparing information and comparing notes. Um, I think it's also helpful when parents say, you know, I really want to see the results for your school and, and require and request that. Mm-hmm. Um, schools are going to respond. The more that families have that latitude to make choices because of education freedom, the more responsive education institutions have to become in order to earn the students attending them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that will, be, uh, that will be an important part of growing a strong um, education freedom environment is the families that demand to see what the outcomes are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also a really important place for philanthropy because um, as these policies are being implemented, the more information that can be shared and the more access given to relevant and uh, useful information when comparing and contrasting and finding that right fit, uh, the better. And those are good areas for them to invest resources to help families find that and to help families, frankly, 
um, maybe start schools with uh, another, you know, handful of families yeah. as well. Hopefully more charter schools or, yeah. More charter schools, more, um, you know, homeschool cooperatives. We've seen yeah, a lot of lots. those. Um, and, uh, and and I think there there's a strong move toward a return to smaller schools with multi-age students in them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that I think that's going to be really healthy. Do you think it's reasonable to ask questions like, do you teach critical race theory? Do you teach gender affirming care? I mean, is it is it reasonable to have access to curriculum when Absolutely. interviewing a school? Absolutely. I think yeah. every school should be willing to share what they what their curriculum is, what their um, you know, what their educational philosophy is. Mm-hmm. And, um, and again, uh, in an education, in a marketplace environment, that will happen because mm-hmm. uh, any school that's serious about existing is going to want to make sure that their families know that. Sure. I found your book incredibly helpful, especially on a macro level. I mean, I've been an educator, so I've had a, a very good sense of the micro, but y- your book really gives a sense of why are we stuck and what are ways to move out of it? What What would you recommend that parents like me read on a micro level just to give us better sense of what to expect? What should we provide our children with? Are, do you have a Do you have a list of favorites? I don't have a personal list of favorite books. I mean, there's so much being written on education now and um, and there has been. But I, I like to recommend the, the 10th chapter, the last chapter in the book, which really does give a vision for what education can be mm-hmm. in a freedom environment. And it really talks about three different, um, totally different settings and different you know, types of students geographically and, uh, and what could be for kids. And I, I think it helps give parents a better glimpse into what what they might look forward to because it's hard to it's hard to imagine beyond what we have known mm. um, without without a lot of other examples and um, yeah I, I just think that uh, you know we have so many creative innovative people in our country their energies many of their energies need to now focus on how they can really help improve a kid's k-12 education experience and i believe that's going to happen as more and more states implement these policies they're going to be there to meet that demand yeah i completely agree um super helpful thank you so much for everything you do don't give up The more they attack you, the more it means that you're doing a great job. Really appreciate everything. Thank you, Betsy. Thanks, Marissa.